morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, we're diving into a new sermon series that's going to take us all the way through the end of 2023 entitled How to Worship a King. So we're moving from our Something Needs to Change series into this new series, How to Worship a King. And the inspiration for this series comes from a book by the same name, written by a worship pastor from Texas named Zach Neese. And the motivation for the series came from a number of conversations over the last year or so that convinced Andrew, myself, and others that we all need to better understand our role and our theology in worship. Now, when we think of our role in worship, it's not something that we talk about normally in that language, that we actually have a job to do when it comes to worshiping God, that we've actually been given a commission from the Lord when it comes to worshiping God. And I think for all of us, when we talk about, we read about some of the worship passages in Scripture, we get this mentality in our heads of like, that's not my job. That was maybe that person's job in that time, but that's not my job. And I don't know about you, especially for all of us that maybe worked those types of jobs that we worked when we were teenagers or in college, uh, the least favorite people to work with were the that's not my job kind of people. I worked in a restaurant for a like three or four years when I was in high school, and you did not want to get put on the shift that was the same as the that's not my job kind of guy because you knew that you were going to end up doing everything. And I learned uh, from a very young age, one of the things I'm thankful for from my parents is that's not my job was not allowed to be in my vocabulary. See, my dad was my football coach for the majority of my life growing up and we had this rule that we would do some kind of competitive drill at the end of practice and whoever lost the drill or whatever group lost the drill was going to have to go put away the equipment. Now, maybe my um, third grade year, right before we started playing tackle football, our last year of flag, there was a kid on the team. I still remember him to this day, like a little tiny guy. His name was Mike McGee, which is the perfect name for a guy that looked and talked like he did. And, and he's very intelligent, right? Like he's going to j- just change the world. But um, at the time, he wasn't a great football player. And so he was regularly putting away the equipment at the end of practice. And I remember one day my dad saying to me, hey, why don't you go help Mike put the equipment away after practice today? It was cold, it was rainy. And I looked at my dad and I said, but that's not my job. And his response was, well, now it's your job every practice for the rest of the year and you get to go run a couple laps before you do it. And so we all actually have a role to play in worship. We don't get to say when it comes to serving and sacrificing for the Lord, that's not my job. So we have a role in worship and we also have a theology of worship. And you might be wondering, what the heck is a theology of worship? And I think sometimes theology is given this status as a big scary word, but in reality, it just means what we think about God, what we believe about God. And so the word theology isn't that difficult to define. The word worship, on the other hand, is a bit tougher to define because there's so many different definitions that you'll find all across the the various denominations. And if you look it up on the internet, and so if our definition of worship, the one that we oftentimes go to in our hearts and minds is just singing, then we've actually fallen quite short of the biblical picture of worship. And yet, I think today, especially in the West, the word worship has become synonymous with singing. And while those are certainly ways to worship, singing songs and playing instruments, if our definition of worship is just singing or just playing instruments, we've fallen quite short 
of the picture God gives us. And so the author, Zach Neese, gives us this helpful explanation of the word worship. It's a compressed form of an old English word, worthship, and it literally means to give something worth, to demonstrate or to attribute to something great value. So we worship whenever we do something that is designed to communicate or demonstrate God's value, to give him glory, to make much of him. And so while praise songs certainly fit the definition of worship, the number of other things that also fall into the category of worship is nearly infinite. And God does not leave us in his word to wonder what some of the most important ways to worship him might be because he's outlined them for us in scripture. And so today and for the rest of this series, we're going to be looking at what is our theology of worship? What does God command us to do in worship of him? And so throughout this series, we'll be talking about a number of those. And it's important to remember that even what we talk about today and throughout the series, it's not an exhaustive list of our priestly roles, of our worshiping roles, but it is a good place to start. And so this morning we're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You can turn there if you have your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen for you as well. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 2, 4 through 10. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You'll notice here in this description in 1 Peter chapter 2, something very interesting, something that I would wager no one has ever actually said to you before, and that's this. You are a priest. And actually, even more rightly said, based on the collective language of this passage and others in the New Testament on the topic, we are priests. That is to say that all of us who are in Christ are are priests of God. Now I know that when you hear that word priest, your brain likely goes to an old guy in robes. But hear me out. The term priest is actually the Latin translation of a Greek word presbyter that just means an elder. And if you read your Bible, particularly in the books Exodus and Leviticus, you'll see the term priest referenced a number of times to refer to specific people who performed a number of ritual functions for God's people that were necessary to establish and maintain their relationship with him. And when Jesus enters the picture, he accomplishes a lot of things. And one of the many things that results from Jesus' redemption of humanity is that the presence of God in relation to his people is no longer contained 
to a specific place in the temple, and that the role of worship is no longer contained to a select few priests, but it's actually been extended to all believers. And so in the early church, they understood this, but it wasn't until the third century, that means about 200 years into the existence of the church, that the priestly office that is known today in churches like the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches began to take form. And this is not me trying to pick on them, but I think what happened over time was they took something that was initially beneficial, having certain people who were leaders over certain areas of churches that allowed them to um, do things administratively and protectively that were beneficial to the church and the body of Christ, they took that role of priest or bishop, and over time, they continued to widen the gap between the priests and the rest of us regular folks, and they developed what we now have in high church-type places like the Catholic Church, the modern priestly office that takes this blessing and this responsibility of all of God's people to be priests in worship of him, and it actually removes it from all of us and gives it only to a select few. There are a number of reasons for this. One of them is that early on in the church's history, they were trying to protect against all different kinds of heresies to outline the proper doctrines of Christianity, which was a good thing. But over time, it began to take on this different form that diminished the role and responsibility of the rest of us as God's priests and then gave it only to those that were ordained through the church. And so as the power gap began to grow, they were able to, within churches like the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, make a number of theological changes over time to the point that there are now a number of spiritual practices that are reserved within those churches for ordained priests that were actually given to each and every one of us. You have far more responsibility as a priest and a worshiper of God than you likely realize. When the Bible says confess your sins and pray for one another, it doesn't say confess to a select few people and let them pray for you. It says confess your sins and pray for one another. That's a collective command for each and every one of us as brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow priests of God to pray for each other. So you have far more power as a worshiper and as a priest of God than you actually realize. And so this morning we're going to look at three of the distinctives given to us together as God's royal priesthood and how they inform both our identities and our functions in worship. So the first one, if you're a note taker, is this. God's priests, that's us, are commissioned as the new temple, as God's new temple. One of the more striking images in this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 is that Peter refers to us as living stones built upon the original living stone, the cornerstone that is Jesus. And in ancient times, in building and, and architecture, the cornerstone was especially significant because it was the stone that every other stone in the building would be built upon. They would look for the most perfectly shaped block of stone that they could find so that as they built the rest of the building, the walls would be square and the foundation would be strong. So every other stone in the building was positionally understood by its relationship to the cornerstone. So when they were measuring, they wouldn't measure things based off of how close they were to the nearest corner. They wouldn't measure things based off of how close they were to the top or to the bottom of the building. They measured, they made measurements based off of how far that piece of, of material was from the cornerstone. 
And this has important implications for how we as God's priests, also as the living stones of the new temple of God, order our lives. We can either choose to live our own way, we can choose to build our lives upon our own foundation, upon ourselves as the cornerstone, or we can order our lives on the true living cornerstone. Just like in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are called as priests, as imitators of God to order our lives not on our own preferences, our own desires, our own worldviews, or how we think things should be, but we actually are built upon the truth that is the cornerstone, Jesus. Verse 8 says that those who do not obey God's word, those who do not obey the message that's been given, those who don't live in obedience to God are not the kind of stones that are used to build but they're actually the kind of stones that are in your way on the ground because they cause you to stumble and fall. I was reading this passage this week, and if you've been here for any period of time, you'll know that I am no stranger to head injuries. And the count, based off of what we can figure out, is four or five concussions for me. And then I read this scripture this week, and I thought, man, it might actually be six. I'm like thinking about what the heck is a stone that causes you to stumble, and I thought it's the kind of stone that when you ride your bike through a a ditch and you don't see it there, you flip over the handlebars and hit your head. I lost like 20 minutes in that period, and I didn't remember that story until I read this passage, so we might be up to six. I'm going to have to go see Sarah a couple extra times in the next few months. One author puts it this way, Jesus has become the cornerstone of God's spiritual temple. And there are two possible responses for you and for me. We can either take our own angle and position from the cornerstone. We can line ourselves up with Jesus. Or we can refuse to live by reference to him and stumble over him instead. Jesus is either going to be the one who gives our lives direction and hope and purpose. Or he's going to give our lives stumbling. It's a very vivid picture. And underlying all of this is the idea that you and I have become the new temple of God. There are actually a few different temples throughout the history of God's people. So you have the tabernacle that is used starting with Aaron and Moses that could be torn down and set up as God's people moves throughout the wilderness. The word tabernacle literally means to dwell with, to be with, for God's presence to be with them. Then you had the first temple that was built in Jerusalem by King Solomon, and that one got destroyed by the Babylonians when they came and they exiled the Jewish leaders. And then when those exiles came back to the Holy Land, they rebuilt the temple, often called the second temple, which would have been the temple that was standing when Jesus was alive. And then that one was later destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman Empire. But the important idea here for all of us that underlines all of that all of what it means for us to be the temple was that the temple was the place where God's people went to commune with him, to get into his presence, the place where people had to go to be with God. After Jesus ascends, however, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the presence of God comes down on believers like tongues of fire and actually enters into the hearts of those who are in Christ. So you and I now don't have to go to any specific place to get into God's presence because if you've accepted Christ, then God's presence actually lives within you. You're part of the new temple. And one of the things that makes this so beautiful, beautiful for us is that the thing that you and I need most in the world is God's presence. Our deepest need in all reality is God's presence. 
We need God more than we need money. We need God more than we need security or our health or any other felt need. What you and I need most in the world is God. That's why in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? That essentially just means, what's the central purpose of humanity? Why are you and I here? And the response is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So God, being rich in mercy, actually aligned our new purpose as priests and as the new temple with the thing that is our greatest need, his presence. So that when you're worshiping, you're both doing what is best for you, but more importantly, you're living into the calling that God has placed on your life as well. So each of us has a call to worship as part of our new identity. Not just the pastors, not just Sarah, not just the worship leaders up here, but actually every single one of us has a call in our lives to live into as worshipers. You are just as much of the new temple as I am. And when you're living your life as the new temple, you're actually living the best possible life that you could give because God designed your purpose and your vocation as a priest and a worshiper to align with one another. This is also one of the reasons why you can't be a Christian alone. Because the new temple and the royal priesthood is a collective calling, not just an individual one. Even if you look at the Greek of this passage, the term you yourselves in verse 5 is a plural term. It means everybody who the word of God applies to. But when it says that we're being built up into a royal priesthood, the word there, eremetua, is a singular Greek word. Meaning that all of us together constitute one priesthood. So our role as God's new temple, as the residence place of God's presence, cannot be fully realized if we're trying to do it on our own, because our collective vocation is a plural, not a singular one. So the freelance Christian, the person who follows Jesus but is too good or too busy or too self-sufficient for the church, is actually a walking contradiction. In the Old Covenant, God set his people apart from the nations, but in the New Covenant, he sets us apart as we live among the nations. All of Scripture testifies to the fact that believers cannot be godly and they cannot be fruitful without joining God's family and realizing some form of separation from the world. That means that at this very moment, if you're a Christian, God is not far off from you. He's actually called you to join in his presence forever because he lives within you. And so don't let that go to waste. You're told in verse 4, it says, come to him. So come to him. Pray without ceasing, it says in First Thessalonians Wow, easy for me to say. 1 Thessalonians 5. So come to him, pray to him continuously and without ceasing. You and I don't ever have to wonder where God is because we know that he's with us. He's near to you. And because of the blood of Jesus, you have no presence to draw before him with confidence. It's what allows us, even as New Testament believers, to reflect on the words of Psalm 23 and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil evil because you are with me. That's actually more true for you than it was for King David when he wrote it because God's presence is no longer contained to the temple. It actually lives within your heart. And so because God is holy and we are sinful, it used to be that the high priests in the time of King David and the men like him, they would enter into God's presence in the Holy of Holies only once a year. 
And they would go in on the Day of Atonement, and they would make sacrifices for the people, and they had to wear all of these different robes and the ephod and the turban, all these jewels all over their body as this example of what the perfect high priest was supposed to be like. And so for, in, order, in order for them to draw into God's presence, they had to wear like 70 to 90 pounds worth of gear. The high priest would be covered in 70 to 90 pounds worth of gear. And on the outside of that, he would have bells that were attached to him so that when he went into the Holy of Holies to do his priestly duties, if, they heard, if the other priests heard the bells stop ringing, they knew that that meant that their high priest was struck down by the glory of God and they would actually have a, a string tied to his leg and they would pull him out if he would struck down by the glory of God. And so they had to do all of these things just one time a year to get to go into the presence of God. But you and I can literally talk to that same God every moment of every day, and we take it for granted. Like, listen, Aaron and his sons would be jealous of you. You have inside of you in this very moment the thing that the high priests of old had to wait once a year and wear 70 to 90 pounds worth of gear for. Don't take that for granted. The opportunity that you have to come before the Lord God of the universe, the King of kings himself, and to rejoice in his presence, which is our greatest spiritual need. Secondly, as God's priest, we are commissioned to offer spiritual sacrifices. The author, Zach Neese, says it like this, A priest's first ministry is to God. There is no greater honor, no greater joy in the entire world than to minister to the King of Kings. At its very essence, worship is just that, ministry to the King, and it is what you were made for. You and I have a role to play, both in professing our worship and ministering to God himself, and in declaring his glory externally to the ends of the earth. And the most beautiful thing is that in living into those roles, we experience the fullness of what it means to be a human, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's important for us to understand that because we're under the new covenant, when we offer sacrifices, we're no longer offering atoning animal sacrifices because Jesus is the ultimate and final atoning sacrifice. And so I always love, this was a thing, and I don't bet McKenna could relate, but this was a thing that happened to me all the time when I was in college. People try to attack theological conservatives. Like I had a professor once say to me in college, well, if you believe everything is the Bible and true, then why don't we have to, and we, that we have to listen to it, why don't we just go sacrifice a bunch of goats out in the center of the campus? And I was like, well, if you want to do that, you can. But that position actually is reflective of complete ignorance of who Jesus is. And keep in mind, I went to a college that called itself a Christian college. And my professor says to me, why don't we just go sacrifice a bunch of bulls and goats out there in the middle of the quad? That argument in and of itself is ignorant of what Jesus accomplished. And so at that point, I just started walking her through the Romans road right there in the middle of class trying to share the gospel with her and talking to her knowing that she didn't actually know who Jesus was and she kicked me out of the classroom. That's a true story too. It was my freshman psychology class and she claimed to be a Christian and I didn't think she was one so I was going to share the gospel with her and she kicked me out of class. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly 
profess his name. So for you and me, our sacrifices are sacrifices of praise because the ultimate and final atoning sacrifice was accomplished on our behalf when Jesus died on the cross. That's one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews summarized in Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, by the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because we've already been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. But that doesn't mean that our role as priests excludes offering continual sacrifices. We're made holy before God through the righteousness that has been imputed to us through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And now our new sacrifices that we offer as God's priest are designed not to make us right with God because we've already got that in Jesus. Instead, they're designed to bring God glory and to help us continually delight in him. The spiritual sacrifices that we are called to offer as God's priest serve a different purpose in that they are primarily designed to minister to God, to serve, and to worship God. So that's why it says in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Offering ourselves up as spiritual sacrifices looks like not conforming to the pattern of the world. Living for God in such a way that our lives don't look just like everyone else's. To be the kind of people that leave the room when gossip starts taking place around us in the workplace. The kind of people who don't take quite as many vacations as our coworkers or buy quite as many new cars because we know that God has blessed us with material wealth so that we can use it to serve him and to bless others. The kind of people who respond to the angry and divisive attitude that is pervading our world with love and mercy and forgiveness. And so another example of that comes from Hebrews 13, 16. It says, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good, sharing with others, being the hands and feet of Christ, that is the spiritual sacrifice that you and I are called to as God's priests. And the reality is that worship as spiritual sacrifice often looks like a whole lot of ordinary that over time produces great spiritual fruit. It looks like every day waking up and bearing your cross in little ordinary ways that you wouldn't bat an eye at, that over time when you add them together make an impact that goes far beyond whatever you could ask or imagine. And so your spiritual sacrifice today might have looked like getting the kids dressed for church. Your sacrifice today, your spiritual sacrifice might look like serving in the children's ministry. It might be reading the Bible for five minutes between church this morning and whatever you're going to go do this afternoon. It might be serving in community organizations and going to work and going to school and coaching your kids' sports teams, all with the goal of bringing God glory and enjoying him forever. He's going to be really upset that I said this, but one of my favorite examples of spiritual sacrifice in this church is Dan Sheeler. There are few things related to this building or the function of almost every program in it that don't have Dan's fingerprints on them. 
Dan will be here during the day working on landscaping. He will go drive the school bus in town and be a light in the community. And then he will come back on Wednesday nights and he will be the D6 security guard. That's spiritual sacrifice in the ordinary that over time produces a lot of gospel fruit. And so there's this pervasive idea among Christians today that worship is just contained to singing and that its primary purpose is to help you and me feel something. Worship is not about making us feel anything. It's about giving God the glory that's due to him in how we pray and how we spend our time together and how we live out the ordinary everyday interactions of our lives. And the fact that worship through singing and through these other things also helps us to feel closer to God is part of God's heart as the one who designed us and who knit us together so that we could live out our callings as priests and still get something out of it. But that's not its primary purpose. And then lastly, this morning, God's priests are commissioned to proclaim his excellence. The, the directive is given to you and I to declare his praise, to proclaim his excellence. So that certainly does include singing, but it goes a lot deeper than that too. We, we are a royal priesthood. That means declaring God's praises should be at our core, should be at the center of who we are as people. In the way that we evangelize, in the way that we share our stories with others, in the way that we sing, even in the passion with which we worship God both inside of church and outside of church. There's this word that is oftentimes used in praise and worship songs. We actually sung it uh, multiple times this morning. It's the word hallelujah. It comes from a Hebrew word, hallel, which means to give praise. But even more literally, it means to extol and rejoice over someone's greatness with passion. The word hallelujah is in itself an expression of praise over the Lord. It means to God be the glory. And so we sing things like the word hallelujah, but here's where I think many of our praises actually are. Hallelujah. I'm not a singer. That's what Bailey's job is for. But that's actually the point. If you know me, you'll know, again, that I'm not a great singer, but I am a passionate sports fan. It doesn't even matter entirely what the sport or the context is. It just matters that I have a team or a person to cheer for. And there's somebody in this church, I'm just picking on people today, who is like me in that regard, and his name is Brian Jones. And you wouldn't know this about him if you didn't see him in a sports context, but he's actually a very passionate fan as well. And last year, or maybe it was two years ago, we were at a CPU versus Vinton Shellsburg girls' substate basketball game, and Brian and I are sitting next to each other, and it was a really good game. It was down at Xavier, and it was going down to the wire. It ended up going into overtime, and in one moment, there's this really bad refereeing decision, and in union, Brian and I stand up from like 10 rows up in the crowd at a high school girls' basketball game and yell, come on! And then I think he said something about calling it both ways, and I said something to the ref about needing new glasses. And this isn't to pick on Brian, it's more to pick on myself, but I don't know when the last time I got that passionate that I would get up out of my seat for God. I don't, I don't know when was the last time I got so upset that someone was profaning the word of God that I would get out of my seat and yell, come on, and get upset at them. Like, I wasn't related to any of those girls, 
I know them through the church, but it's not like that game had any real impact on the grand scheme of my life or even on theirs. Like most of them are, are not going to go play in the WNBA. Riley Goble, maybe. We're hoping. And yet, when we scored to pull away for the overtime win down the stretch, you better believe that Brian and I both were out of our seat like, Woo! Let's go! CPU, high school girls basketball substate. <laughs> and for the God who has given me more than I could ever ask for or imagine, the one who could have chosen to stay in heaven and leave me to deal with the consequences of my own sin, the one who knew everything about me before I was knit together in my mother's womb. You'd be hard-pressed to find me shouting for anything that has to do with God. And so I look at my life as a worshiper, and I look at the, the passion with which I worship God and the passion that I take to high school sporting events. And I have to say, man, I'm a priest and something's out of line here. And don't come up to me after the service, men in particular, and tell me that you're just not a passionate person. You're passionate about something. Like even if you don't want to sing the loudest in church, if I asked you to tell me the stats of all of the running backs on your team, and you could, but you couldn't tell me a single Bible verse, something's out of whack there, priests. This is something in each of our lives, or there, excuse me, there is something in each of our lives that will bring us to praise, that will bring us to shouts, that will bring us to tears. So I don't care if you're the most stoic, masculine dude in here. You have been commissioned to passionately declare the praise and excellency of your God. So who among us, what, where among us are the Aaron's and the Moses? Those who were willing to do whatever it took to lead God's people where they needed to go. Where are the Caleb's and the Joshua's, the ones who were willing to stand with faith and confidence in their Lord when no one else around them would. The men like Joab and the men like David who were willing to go to battle for war, were willing to go to war and go to battle for the Lord their God. Each and every one of us has been commissioned as a worshiper. And so as we move into this new series about what it means to worship God, what it means to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, what it means for each and every one of us to be a priest in the kingdom of God, my charge to you, church, is simply this. Let's get to work. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the excellency of your name. We thank you that you have commissioned us to declare your praises. And yet, God, you didn't simply call us to a vocation, but you so knit us together, God, that part of our identity, part of our inheritance as sons and daughters of the King, Lord, is that as we worship you, as we draw into your presence, we're actually living into the fullness of what it means to be humans created in your image. And so, God, we praise you. We worship you with passion this morning. We come forward to take of your body and your blood this morning in the sacrament of communion, praising you and glorifying you, asking that you would move in such a mighty way in our lives that we would live into the calling that we have been given as priests and worshipers to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Lord Jesus, would you be with us today and every day, and would you help us to praise you with the way that we live our lives in Jesus' name.
Amen.